Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. India had more than 10 million foreign tourists arrive in 2019 and more than a billion domestic tourists. A large portion of these are religious tourists, visiting the multitude of Hindu, Muslim and Buddhist sites scattered around the country. Now the disclaimer here is that a lot has changed during the time of COVID, but with the view of one day returning to a happier, more travel-free day, here to discuss the issues and impacts of religious tourism in India is Dr. Kieran Shindy, Senior Lecturer and Convener of the Planning Program at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Kieran. Thank you, Matt. Let's start uh, quite broadly. What is religious tourism? How do you define that? And how do you distinguish it between leisure-inspired tourism and more, you know, religiously motivated pilgrimages? At what point does all of that become tourism? Tourism, in, in a very broad and fundamental concept, is just leaving one's home and going to another place, spend a night there and come back. That's the kind of a structural definition of tourism when you leave uh, for anything other than work. Now, within this, there are several sub-forms, and one could argue that pilgrimage or going for religious reasons was almost the origins of tourism industry. In fact, uh, one of the earliest records that we have is the pilgrimage to the Holy Land in, in 18th century, where people would go on boats and go to Holy Land, and as a part of that journey, would also venture into other places. So tourism involves three things. One is the motivation. The second is the journey itself. And the third is the destination. Where does one one want to go? So if you look at destination kind of thing, then we have beach tourism, we have mountain tourism, we've got product-based tourism. If your journeys are longer journeys, then we'll definitely call them voyages or pilgrimages where the journey itself is a focus. The destination has got a secondary role. And then the motivation. Now, this is where the big thing comes in. Whether you're going with a primary religious purpose, and religious then could be a number of things, but are you also going for leisurely purpose? So it's a Sunday morning, you don't know what to do, and then you're just going out somewhere. Leisure-oriented tourism. Where does the challenge come in? So there's no clear definition of religious tourism. We can't seem to agree on to it, even in scholarship. But we know broadly what this means. It means contemporary patterns of travel to sacred sites and religious sites. Mm. Now, the motivations could be different. So obviously, if you're going to a religious site, you're not going for a beach tourism, right? You're going for, with a religious purpose. The fundamental qualification is that the motivation is religious. And it could be then oriented towards religious performance rituals, or it could also be motivated towards spirituality, which is a more individualized seeking. But that seeking happens within the framework of religious authorities or religious bodies. So somebody's going to a priest, to a guru, or to an ashram, or to a sacred place. So mm. the primary motivation remains religious in nature. That's the first thing. Now, on the sidelines, if you're going to that place, you're also interested in heritage, because most of the religious places, as you would see, have some of the best architecture of all the tapestry that you could think about. Because historically, it's the religious artifacts and religious places that have received the largest investments. So, for example, if you look at churches, all across the world, things were brought to the churches as the finest offered by a devotee. 
So there will be silk robes, there will be uh, golden offerings. So the religious infrastructure, as you like to call it, temples, churches, pilgrim lodges, all of these were very, very rich because people donated a lot of money as donations towards God or towards the sacred. So they also are very rich repositories of what we call cultural heritage. So as a sideline, I would be interested in looking at what the sacred place or sacred site has to offer. So mm. that's when it comes to the large cities or town-based religious tourism. But religious yeah. tourism can also be to the mountains, for example, or to sacred rivers. Now, when it's a natural element, which is the focus of religious tourism, then you are also going and seeing some other sites along the way before you actually go to the river. Mm. When sightseeing gets added to a religious motivation, that's where we say it's religious tourism. And I guess you get the interesting differences in motivation like some people will be going to that to see it because it is a religious site whereas others would be going there simply because as you say it's it's nice architecture that's what we call the spectacle or the exotica mm. or the otherness so all of these combine where you're inspired by the otherness of that culture and you want to know more <clears throat> so that also happens in in most of the sacred sites and religious sites so yeah. there you are almost like a tourist but otherwise, if you're going there with a clear understanding that you want to either perform a religious act, which is making an offering, taking a vow, any kind of those things, right? Mm. So then it's pure, it is primarily a religious aspect, religious tourism. So there's a classic adage that we use. If a pilgrim is half tourist, a tourist is a half pilgrim because you never know when you enter as a tourist in a sacred place, you might come out with a spiritual reverence, and therefore you could become a pilgrim. Mm, that's a hope. That's a hope yeah. they might have, yeah. So how big of an industry is this in India? Uh, is religious tourism a, a big part of the economy? Is it a draw card? Tell me about uh, some of those aspects of it. Yes, that's something that's always been on the minds of people when they talk about it. It should be a very big industry because there are so many people who travel. Now, primarily in developing countries, and I'm just giving India as an example, where we do not have these uh, modern industrialization. I mean, there's some modern industrialization, but we didn't have the concept of holidays and things like that. Mm. It is the socially driven needs to go to a sacred site. So uh, every rite of passage in your life, you would be going to a sacred site. For example, if uh, my parents would have uh, taken a vow in front of a deity or a god or something saying that if they are blessed with a child they'll bring the child so my journey in religious tourism starts even when I'm a little infant right so that's my first indication of traveling hundreds of kilometers and going in and doing some rituals then they would say when this boy will become an adult it's almost like baptism when he gets married we'll do xyz so every now and then there is that pull factor around the sacredness or divine features uh, that run in the family. So sorry to uh, to delve into your personal history right now, but it sounds like you have travelled over India quite a lot to these different sites just as part of your upbringing. Yes. So yes. Uh, practically how much have you travelled just as, as part of the spiritual journey then? Uh, let's put it this way. I would have gone to at least not less than 15-odd sites just because of purely these reasons. Yeah as an upbringing but then of course as my own professional career I have traveled a lot more but an, oh, an course, average yeah. individual would go through these phases 
or these mm. stages regularly the reason i'm bringing this up is it doesn't get accounted as tourism but it ah. is definitely a part of travel because when you go to a site like that you're going to go stay overnight you're going to consume something you're going to make some contribution to that economy yes or no we'll talk about that later but the fact that you have gone to a destination and you're not a resident of the destination means that destination has to get a lot more visitors mm. and they're all going primarily because of religious reasons they're not going there because they are tourists and therefore often the problem is we don't get this accounted for as tourism and most of the tourism literature tourism industry tourism uh, systems rely on formal registration of tourists okay. whereas all of this almost escapes what we would call as a formal registration system or formal so recognition of tourism so so it's easier to keep track of international tourists that way yes. i suppose as yes. to where they're going but when you get somebody who's just traveling from one part of the country to the other they could be driving there's no way to know whether they're engaging in tourism activities or not yes that's one bigger problem the second mm. subset of that is because we are these people who are doing religious tourism that primarily motivated by religious reasons they would not be staying in hotels or that was the case but things are changing quite dramatically part of the religious reasons is you would stay not at a hotel but at the priest's house if you're going to a sacred place so there mm. is a whole informal social exchange that's happening so much of religious tourism as we know happens in the socio cultural domain and not from a transactional economic point of view and that is why it doesn't get recognized and registered into the tourism as you call tourism satellite accounts and things like that let's put it this way if i have been brought up like that which most indian kids would have been brought up like that pretty much 70 to 80% of people who travel would have been traveling for religious reasons primarily but it's not a, a major shift from one place to the other place it's almost a regular part of it so you go to any sacred site it will be very hard to distinguish whether this is a visitor or this is a local resident because there's just so much of flow there for example if there is a site like shirdi it's not a ritual site it's not a traditional pilgrimage site but it's a modern guru but you have got something like 80000 people every day in that place 80000 we are talking the population of the town is just about 30000 when we talk of religious tourism in india most of the sacred sites we have two towns overlapped onto each other so there is a town of residents and there is a whole town of visitors that's coming and going so every day you've got a new town coming in new town going out mm, that's the scale mm. we are talking very important to the local economies then i suppose that these religious sites are able to continue and welcome the domestic tourism trade but is there an international aspect of it like i, I know that uh, buddhist sites in india would be much more of a draw card to say the southeast asian countries where buddhism is quite widespread sure. so does that take on like an aspect of soft diplomacy for india to be able to engage with those countries Yes the international dimension of religious tourism is is equally important there are at least two ways of looking at it the first one is what you talked about buddhist tourism where india is a repository of buddhist heritage it's a very strong because buddha was born and had all of uh, his sermons and everything here so this is a very sacred place uh, almost epicenter of buddhism is india so people from all over world and particularly southeast asia where buddhism 
has over the time subsequently gone and manifested itself in many different forms, not necessarily the way it is in India. Nonetheless, these uh, people from Southeast Asia are the largest draw card for the sites in India. Now, that's one part of it. So that's the diplomacy part where there are bilateral relationships. And that's mainly because the existing Buddhist population in India is very small. Mm. We're not talking not even one or two person people. So if one has to maintain the sustainability of this heritage, then we have to make sure that there is an active religious and spiritual practice in these places. Otherwise, they'll remain archaeological ruins. Mm. So how do you enliven these phenomenal historical heritage, archaeological heritage, universal value heritage, and there's broadly world heritage sites. How do you keep them viable if you do not have practitioners and followers of that religion? You look for them elsewhere. And that's where the diplomacy comes in, where the Indian government has gone out to Southeast Asian neighbors and said, in the past, this was all a part of Asian subcontinent. So you're more than welcome to come in and practice Buddhism in India and provide the spiritual content to these archaeological remains. So that's Mm. where it's working. That has led to a lot more interaction between countries like Thailand, Myanmar, Sri Lanka. So there's a lot, lot more traffic that's coming in from there. The other layer of international tourism, which is different, it's not too large in scale, but it's very influential and powerful, which is the Western seekers coming in and looking for spiritual enlightenment or uh, looking for alternative ways of life, given impetus by when the Beatles came to the Himalayas in the 1970s. So since then, we have had this consistent high profile international tourists who have come in and they they add a lot more. I don't want to use the word glamour, but it kind of provides a different layer to it. Mm. And and that has spurred a very different movement of uh, international tourists across. So these are people who are constantly seeking. So they would come in and stay for longer duration. It's that presence. Now, that is very different from somebody like me who's going in on a Saturday evening and coming back on a Sunday night, Mm. right? So that impact is completely different. So internationalization has these two very strong streams, if you like. Yeah, yeah. It's a common phenomenon in recent years, I find, with uh, the world becoming open, COVID aside, that tourism sites are getting busier and busier, more congested. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself, but tourists can ruin a destination if there's too many of them. And a site can cater to tourism too much and, uh, you know, become almost like a theme park. Is there that sort of trend at all in the religious sites in India that you found? Yes. And this is a global phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that we theorize this, uh, and I've done that quite extensively, is at the core of any site, there is something called the spirit. Maybe it's a sacred relic. Maybe it's a place of a saint. It Maybe it's a place where uh, people believe that God would have had a manifestation through different forms. So that source is always there. Once we know that there are people going in there, then you have the service industry that goes along with it on the sites because when you know there are people there, there are opportunities, there are economic opportunities and all sorts of things. So people start coming and settling in. So this is what we call tourism-driven urbanization. Mm. So most of the sacred sites would be going through this urbanization process, which is driven mainly by touristic flows. So there is going to be a lot of impact, no doubt about it. 
those impacts are in a couple of areas. In other mass tourist sites, people don't bother too much about it because they know it's a tourist site, so it's a beach site, so tourism is going to come happen yeah. and therefore you're looking into it. With sacred sites, the peculiar problem comes in when they start to see tourists causing challenges or deviations from the standard sacred norms. So there is a normalistic behavior of being a pilgrim or being somebody who's kind of revering a site. But the moment you get tourists coming in, you start to see a different dynamic. In common parlance, it's called tourists will come and pollute the sacred site because they will demand experiences which are different from somebody who's looking at this sacred site with reverence. People want to see the trees, the rivers, where you know there is what we call the divine presence. But then when they come in, they are greeted with hotels. Now, hotels are primarily the areas where local residents would say, these outsiders who are coming in, they're staying in hotels, eating non-vegetarian food or whatever they're doing, and then coming and polluting our sacred site. So the tourism has got very different kinds of impacts depending on how the site dynamics work. So if it's a very traditional orthodox site that has been continuing for ages uh, and has a strong religious community, which is which acts as a custodian of that cultural heritage, both tangible and intangible, those are the people who would be very, very concerned when tourists come. They say the sacred site is mainly for the followers or the devotes who want to come and worship there or express mm. their gratitude or connect with the divine. Mm. So that's where the tourists become a little unwelcome. But it's an unspoken unwelcome, though, isn't it? Yeah. Because there's no explicit here. Yeah, it's very you can't hard. exactly say to tourists, "No, we don't want you to yeah. come here and and share in the greatness of this site." This is where the tricky bit has come in, is that lots of people who come in as tourists, when they see uh, the serenity of this place, the spiritual ambience, there is a lot more that's going on for their senses. And mm-hmm. they can get uh, a bit overwhelmed by that and get sucked into the devotional kind of ambience or the spiritual or the religious environment that they are in. For example, uh, in a lot of my work, I've, when I've been interviewing people, they say, oh, we come here because we are looking for a religious environment, a spiritual environment. How does that come into being? So the bells ringing in the temple, mm-hmm. the mass singing, the communal singing that's going on, the regular processions that come in, the aura around the deity because of the religious paraphernalia, as we call it. There's a lot more beauty in that, which you don't see in ordinarily in the city. Yeah. So that's a big departure. So they're there for the religious environment, the religious experience. So no matter how you come in, if you are able to experience that, that is transformative. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, it's, it's very hard to say these are the problematic tourists. But on the aspect of problematic, what has been the environmental impact of tourism in India? I know that this is a big topic that you could quite easily write a book about, which you have done. But I suppose some of the aspects would be not just the impact of the site, but also the impact of the travel. Yes. Broadly, there are two kinds of impacts. Let's do simple stuff first. The first Mm -hmm. is when you know that there are kind of, let's say, 80,000 people coming on a daily basis. We know that's a problem. Because if the town is small, which is typically what happens in secret sites, they're not very large towns. There are some exceptions. So in South India, if you go, most of the towns are actually built around temples. 
the ecosystem is quite large to absorb that. But typically sacred sites would be on a peripheral area, smaller towns. And suddenly you've got this huge influx coming in. Now, that could be very easily discerned if it was a day of a festival, then you will see hundreds and thousands and millions of people coming in and going out. So these are called the direct impacts where you know that people have come and people have gone. They have used up resources. You can see the waste is accumulated. So that's a direct impact, right? Now, when this becomes more and more frequent, so people do not come only on festivals, but they come on the next Sunday or every second Sunday of the month or every fourth Sunday of the month, these impacts are more regular and recurrent. They become almost a part of the environmental problems of the town, right? Mm. Waste management, uh, stress on water and all of that. So these are direct. But there's another one which is more detrimental, which fundamentally changes the fabric of the town, which is the indirect impacts. So when people know that there are going to be thousands of people coming in, then you need to provide for a restaurant, you need to provide for hotels, you need to provide for toilets, you need to provide for car parking and all of that, which means fundamentally we are changing the land use and we are contributing to the urbanization, the urban growth of that town. Now, this is where the problems start coming in because these are indirect impacts. They cannot be measured right up front like today you can see. They are more long-term, over Mm -hmm. 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So one part is the spatial environment starts to change anyways. The second one is there is a rapid growth of migration. So when there are economic opportunities, people from outside start to come in. And that's a bit difficult because they are coming mainly for economic reasons. Whereas the town, the core town, people who have been born in that town have a different sense of pride because they're born in a sacred place, right? So there is a very big difference. But whereas a migrant who comes in may not share the same values and beliefs in the religious system of it. And Mm. that's where we start to see a lot more problems coming in because there are differences in expectations, aspirations, and therefore we start to see this impacts spiraling down because these new people are not contributing. They're coming mainly for the economic activity, but they do not feel the moral responsibility to do something about this, the impacts. Mm -hmm. The town gets almost split, if you like. So let's address the elephant in the podcast. Uh, In the past 18 months, there has been a COVID pandemic around the globe. Uh, So that's been keeping international tourists away. But my concern with religious tourism now that we've been having this conversation is that it could actually be uh, not just affecting the local economies of sites that depend on tourists, but also increasing the spread as there are people who are still making religious pilgrimages to different sites, taking COVID with them. It's quite ironic, honestly, because pilgrimages since they by nature are large-scale events. They're large gatherings, they're concentration of people. This is a heightened sense of coming together, right? So all the pilgrimage events, the big festivals in sacred places, people will go in herds. You won't go as an individual. So we've got records uh, from the Hajj in Islam way back in 1880s and 85s. I've got some uh, documentation from early uh, 1900s. And there are some other Australian researchers who have looked at uh, the Kumbh Mela, the largest gathering of, of people on the earth. For centuries, people have always gone to sacred sites as collectives. 
and we know that if there was a disease, a contagious disease, it will spread from those places. There's no doubt about it. But mm. the feeling that was always there when you go on pilgrimage, which is almost a precursor of religious tourism, that if you go out to a pilgrim site, you're almost dedicating yourself to the divine forces, whatever you want to call it, the deity, the God, Krishna, Shiva, whatever you want to call. But you are going in devotion. And if anything happened to you, and particularly if you die, you would go straight to the heaven. So that was perfectly oh. all right. So the mm. fundamental principle was, I am actually going for a divine communion. Right? Done. Now, when you have got thousands of people with a similar sentiment coming in, that's where the problem comes in for the people who are administrating all of this. Because how would you make sure that nobody gets infected? It's interesting that most pilgrim sites are actually the sacred places where you will find destitute people. You'll find people who have been almost neglected by the society and dumped into those places at the mercy of the God, more prone and vulnerable to health problems and all of that. So that ecosystem already looks after all of it. Now, because of our heightened consciousness today about COVID and the spread of COVID, we are trying to introduce certain measures of not spreading it. But what would people do 50 years ago? People still went it. We had cholera, we had typhoid, we had all sorts of contagious diseases that were there. That was sometimes quite brutal. In fact, India has, is, is full of these historical precedents where the colonial officers in the pre-independence era would actually beat up people, you know, just not let them go back. Uh, these pilgrims were never uh, allowed to go re and return to their homes because they would be seen as carriers of, of disease. So there was a lot more that was controlled by force. Now, we can't do that in, in present day context because we're in democratic setup. You can't do that. Right? So we rely on people's own intelligence and own understanding of how to deal with this. They are super spreaders. Yes, totally agree. All the religious events were any event for that matter. A footy match is a super spreader. Now, two things that were to open immediately after the lockdown, the, the biggest demand was the temple should be open. Because now we are not talking about tourism. We are talking about faith. When people believe that something like COVID is happening, or let's say non-COVID time, if I have got an ailment, I've got a disease, what am I going to do? Either see a doctor, if I'm from a Western society, or go and pray to the God. You look at the history of Lourdes, look at the history of Fatima, all of these places are, are where people go with faith that their diseases will be taken away. That principle still applies, COVID or no COVID. So mm. even if, with COVID, they would still go to the temple and say, please, God, get rid of this COVID. Right? In fact, during COVID, it's quite funny. In India, we had so many religious ceremonies as communities to pray that COVID goes away. Mm. And, and we had lots of rituals and performances and all of that. Now, one can laugh about it, but at the core of it, it deals with this fundamental sentiment of being a human, which is the emotional connect with something which is a superpower. And that superpower resides in sacred places. And therefore, people will go no matter what. In fact, day before yesterday, we had a procession called Palki, which has been happening for more than 700, 800 years now. So last year, there was big resistance whether this procession that goes for 21 days and covers about 200 kilometers on foot, can this go ahead? Now, this procession typically has something 
in the range of 400 to 500,000 people walking mm. for 21 days. Right? So last year it didn't happen, but they say, well, we can't break traditions. So there was a very small group of the core group. Instead of walking, they took it through bus, COVID care bus. That's how they did it because they said the saint cannot stop going from this place to the other place. It has to happen. But mm. it was in a reduced thing. Day before yesterday, the same procession happened and the chief minister, the premier of the state of Maharashtra, actually drove himself. Now, this is very rare in India where you've got hundreds of drivers who can drive you. The chief minister drove himself that journey of about six hours by car and went up to the main temple to receive that procession. Now, how do you rationalize any of this? You cannot. For a Western mind, this becomes very difficult to understand. But if you come from that kind of a social, cultural and religious setting, it becomes the most obvious thing to do. COVID or not. Yeah. COVID or not. Kieran Shindy, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.